0: Before we get into today's teaching, I want to start with a quote from one of my favorite theologians. His name is Walter Brueggemann, and he says this. One of the misfortunes in the long history of the church is that we have mistakenly separated love of God from love of neighbor, and always they are held together in prophetic poetry. Like, I don't even know what that exactly means, but prophetic (laughs) poetry just sounds vibey. It sounds so good. Most of us know the greatest commands that Jesus gives us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I think sometimes we see these two separate ideas as two separate things. Like my relationship with God is one thing, but my relationship with people, that's another thing. Like they're two separate categories, but Jesus saw loving God and loving our neighbor as inseparable, one inseparable mandate They were tied for first in Jesus' minds. In other words, we cannot hope to love God well if we don't love the people he surrounds us with, our neighbors. Look to your neighbor and say, I love you, neighbor. For those of you online, I love you, neighbor. So then the question is, who then is our neighbor, and how do we love our neighbors well? Luckily, we have the Bible, we have Scripture to tell us The answers to these questions, and so today we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. It's a very famous passage, but I hope today God's going to illuminate a different aspect of this famous story that most of us might know if you grew up in the church. Um, So before we get into it, let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll jump right in. God, I pray today that we would enter into your prophetic poetry, this link, between loving you and loving our neighbors. And I think for some of us, this is a beautiful idea, but it hasn't really taken root as a practical reality in our lives. So today I pray that you would stir us up. I pray that we would catch on, not because we have to, but because we see the beauty in loving our neighbors as ourselves. So would you open up this text to us, open up our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, starting from verse 25, we're just going to go through it. passed by on the other side. Now let's pause here really quick. I think most of us, let's be real, are reading the story and we're thinking, what the hell is wrong with these people? Why would you leave a man bloodied and dying on the street? They were supposed to be the religious representatives of God. How could they leave this man bleeding out? I would never do that as a follower. Come on, let's be real. How many of you are reading this and you're kind of thinking that, like, what's wrong with these people? They're whack. But before we do, let me give you a little bit of context. I'm about, I'm about to see some, a sweep of convictions across the room. <laughs> what we have to understand is the priests and the Levites, the priests that passed by, the Levite that passed by, they, they would work at a temple in the city of Jerusalem. But most of them actually lived in a city called Jericho. It was about 18 miles away. Come on, some of y'all never walked over three miles in your life, right? 18 miles away in Jericho. So what, what they would do is they would travel 18 miles from their home in Jericho to go to Jerusalem. And they would work in these two-week shifts. And so they would spend two weeks apart from their families in Jerusalem working at the temple. And then after, they would get their pay, and then they would journey back home, the 18 miles all the way back to Jericho. Now, during this time, there was no BART, there was no Muni, there was no public transportation, no bullet train, nothing like that. It was a dangerous and a long road from Jericho to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was so dangerous and treacherous, in fact, that they called it the way of blood. Come on, some of you think your commute to work is dangerous? No, you ain't never been through the way of blood. And so they would go for two weeks, get their pay, come back home. But the thing we have to understand about their pay is this their pay wasn't no direct deposit into their chase account, it wasn't no check, it wasn't even cash or gold. These people that worked in the temple, the Levites and the priests, their pay would either be an animal or part of the grain offering. Basically, all the tithes that were given to the temple were split up amongst the Levites and the priests who were working there, and they would take the animal or the grain offering home as food for their families. Now, at the time, there were all sorts of laws revolving around food, and one such law was that any food that came into contact with anything considered unclean such as a man bleeding out on the side of the road, would have to be thrown out because it would be contaminated and it would be no longer clean. So imagine with me, before you're judging, imagine you're this priest or this Levite. You just got off this two-week shift of work, working hard, you're dead tired, and now you're making the long journey home through the way of blood with the food that your family desperately needs, and you see this man bleeding out, and you know that if you stop down to help him and touch him, the food that your family depends on that you're bringing home will no longer be clean, and you'll have to throw it out. Of course, it's wrong. We know that. But don't think for a moment that you wouldn't wrestle with that same tension if you were this Levite or this priest. Before we pass judgment, let's forget. There's that these people passed by this man to make sure that their families had enough to eat. I mean, honestly, we pass by people on the streets for far less, right? We pass by people in need all the time to make our work appointments, to make our coffee dates, just because we're uncomfortable or it's inconvenient. All this to say, we're in no place to judge this Levite or this priest. In fact, we are very rarely, I hate to say this, we're very rarely the good Samaritan in this story. I know we like to see ourselves as the main characters in the stories of the Bible, but we are very rarely the good Samaritan in this story. More often times, we're the Levite, we're the priest conviction okay but it gets better i promise going on but a samaritan as he traveled came where the man was and when he saw him he took pity on him he went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to the inn and took care of him The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. You have to understand, for the Jewish listener hearing this story... This was like an M. Night Shyamalan twist, right? How many of you have seen Sixth Sense? All of his movies have this big twist at the end. The Jews were hearing this, and they're thinking, okay, I know where this story is going. I know how this is going to end. It's like when you're watching Sixth Sense, none of y'all had an idea that he was actually dead. Spoiler alert, right? None of us knew that. Don't say you did. You knew? You knew? Okay, Paulette, she's just a movie whiz, so of course she knows. And so the Jews are listening, and they're like, okay, I know where he's going with this. It's not the priest. It's not the, the Levite. It's not the religious elite. It's the average Jewish person. It's like us, the ordinary Joe. And this is a story about how, you know, it's a lesson that anybody can be a hero. Any ordinary one of us can be an amazing hero when the time arrives. But then Jesus drops a bomb. It wasn't a Jew who stopped to help. It was a Samaritan. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but this was so scandalous because the Jews and the Samaritans had a long history of hatred for one another. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds, And as heretics, on the other hand, the Samaritans viewed the Jews as racist bigots, which honestly they were. And of all the people Jesus could have chosen to make the hero of this story, he chose the Samaritan, the enemy, the other, the one who was not supposed to be like God, the one who was not supposed to stop. When everyone else passed by, he chose the other, the least likely to do so. I mean, honestly, the only other equivalent I could think of our day and age is telling this story in a mostly white, mostly conservative, maybe mostly Trump nation, and revealing the hero of the story to be a gay man. How offensive, how scandalous. Or maybe it's like telling the story in downtown San Francisco, and the hero of the story turns out to be Ben Shapiro, right? It's something like that. That's how scandalous it was. When people were listening, they weren't just like, this is a good lesson. They were offended because the neighbor, the person who was a good neighbor, was not anyone that they thought should be the good neighbor. Now he goes on to say, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So, cool story. What what can we draw from this story that Jesus is telling about what it means to be a good neighbor? So, there's two things that Jesus does here. The first thing is this. Jesus universalizes neighbor. What I mean is your neighbor isn't just the person who lives next door. Your neighbor is anybody and everybody. One of my favorite authors that are still alive today, his name is Bob Goff. If you have not read Love Does or Everybody Always, read it, and you will feel like, man, I just do not know how to love. Because this man embodies what it means to be a good neighbor and what it means to love. And this is what he writes. It's kind of long-winded, but follow with me. He says, each of us is surrounded every day by our neighbors. They're ahead of us, behind us, on each side of us. They're every place we go. They're sacking groceries and attending city council meetings. They're holding cardboard signs on street corners and raking leaves next door. They play high school football and deliver the mail. They're heroes and hookers and pastors and pilots. They live on the streets and design our bridges. They go to seminaries and live in prisons. They govern us and they bother us. They're everywhere we look. It's one thing we all have in common. We're all somebody's neighbor and they're ours. This has been God's simple yet brilliant master plan from the beginning. He made a whole world of neighbors. We call it earth, but God just calls it a really big neighborhood. this I mean, if you know Bob Goff, he's so playfully delightful, right? Imagine the whole world is like one big neighborhood to God. And we're all called to be neighbors to one another. This is beautiful. It means your neighbor is your classmate. It's your coworker. It's the waiter. It's the barista. Your neighbor is the foreigner. It's the immigrant. It's the refugee. It means your neighbor is the Republican or the Democrat or the gay or the lesbian. Your neighbor is the enemy or your friend. Everybody is our neighbor. And no one is disqualified from your love. This sucks. Right? This sucks because it means there is no clause to get you out of doing the hard work of loving others even when it seems impossibly hard. And we don't get to pick our neighbors. Everyone is our neighbor. Now this is beautiful. And it's all good. Jesus universalizes neighbor, but the danger here Is that if we universalize it too much, it becomes a beautiful concept that has no practical bearing in our lives. It's kind of like people who say, I don't need to go to church because I'm part of the universal body of Christ. And I always tell those people, what does that actually mean? Because what I see in the Bible is that our devotion to the universal church is always expressed in the local church. Because you can't... The local church is where you can actually practice love and forgiveness and reconciliation and patience and love for one another. You can't just do that with a theoretical universal body of Christ. In the same way, in other words, we can make our neighbor a conceptual idea that has no practical reality in our lives. So Jesus universalizes neighbor, and we know that danger of theorizing this but not making it practical. But he also particularizes neighbor. What I mean by that is that your neighbor, this is going to be mind-blowing, is the person that lives next to you. Your neighbor is the person that lives to your right, to your left, above you, beneath you. Your neighbor is the person that you pass by every single day on the way to work, your neighbor is the barista that you get coffee from every morning. Your neighbor is the barber that you visit every month. Your neighbor is the gym trainer that you see once a year every January. <laughs> right, Ying? It's your literal neighbor and your literal neighborhood. And so, yes, Jesus universalizes neighbor. Everyone is our neighbor, but he also particularizes it. Who, is, who are you surrounded with right now? Who's in your everyday life? You know, when we first started pastoring in the city, one of the first pastors that we met was a man named Travis Clark, who became a really good friend. And he, he pastors a church called Canvas in the marina. And we always talk about how different our congregations are because he's in the marina and we're here. Won't make any jokes about that. But the first question he asked us was, are you going to be a church for the city or a church for the neighborhood? And I thought about that, and I thought, wow, that's a really good question, because there are a lot of churches that come here that want to be a church for the entire city, but they don't really understand the complexities and the differences and the nuances between each neighborhood. And Krista and I, we thought to ourselves, that's a really good question. We want to be a church for the neighborhood. What does it mean to be here in the mission, in Potrero? What does it mean to be here in our neighborhood? You know, one of the things that we're going to focus on in the coming season is what does it mean that we're a church here in the mission? How do we affect the mission? What does it mean that we are to be a light and a refuge here in this very area? And how could we be good neighbors right here? But I think most of us read love your neighbor as yourself, and we jump to the metaphorical meaning right away while skipping over the literal meaning, right? Let's be real. God wants me to love the person with the radically different political lean. Oh, God wants me to love the outsider and the oppressed. Listen, cool concepts, bro, but how are you actually living this out? What if when Jesus commanded us to love our neighbor, he meant love your actual neighbor? (laughs) This is revolutionary, isn't it? Because most of us don't really think about where we live and the neighbors that surround us. We don't really think about that. What if when Jesus said neighbor, he meant more than just your literal neighbor, but not less than your literal neighbor. What if loving our neighbor it wasn't just a conceptual idea, but something we practice with the people we encountered every single day? Now, what comes next after this passage? Most preachers, I'm not trying to be like most preachers. Most preachers stop here because in your Bible, it's, it's, it stops. The paragraph ends and it goes to a new section. But I think it's significant what the author writes right after And this is what he says after jesus gives this beautiful powerful and challenging illustration about loving our neighbors What's the first thing that happens right after if we look at verse 38 as jesus and his disciples were on their way He came to a village where a woman named martha opened her home to him For many of us our home Is a sacred place It's a place of retreat a place to hide away from the world, a place to get away from the busyness of our office and the hustling and the bustling of the streets, a place to Netflix and DoorDash and sleep. The typical Christian, the truth is, doesn't think about their home any different from the way a non-Christian thinks about their home. And when we talk about reaching our city, most of us think, okay, I'm going to volunteer with SF Food Bank, or I'm going to partner with YWAM like Emily does, or I'm going to go to City Impact in the Tenderloin, or I'm going to share the gospel at work in SF as it is in heaven. But most of us think this happens outside of our homes instead of in and through our homes. What if we were to recapture our homes as an outpost for the kingdom of God in our neighborhoods? What if our homes became the context where we could live out the command to love our neighbors as ourselves? John Tyson, um, who we drew a lot of inspiration from in our last collection, A Creative Minority, he actually writes a lot about this, and I just want to read. It's also kind of a long quote, but this one will floor you. We could end the sermon right here. I know you want me to, but we have a little more. But it's powerful. This is what he says. What would the church look like if we chose to buy homes in the same streets and subdivisions, the same buildings and blocks, the same suburbs and sections? What would our love look like if we showed up dozens of times a week in small but profound ways? Meals cooked, prayers prayed, songs sung, scriptures studied, games played, parties thrown, tears shed, reconciliation practiced, resources given. What if we stopped attending community groups and became groups of communities? What if our homes stopped being the places we hid from the world, but havens to which the world comes for healing? Dang, that's a mic drop. What if we viewed our homes not as a hiding place from the world, but as a haven for it? How challenging, how radical, how countercultural is the idea? What if we viewed our homes not as castles to keep people out, but as refuge to draw people in? Rosaria Butterfield, who actually writes a beautiful book about this, she writes, Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with the house key. The gospel comes with the house key. Krista and I, we just bought a new home. And when you get your house key, it's a beautiful moment. You feel it's a very special, sacred time. What if when we bought into the gospel, it came with the house key for a home to be used for his kingdom? Do you see your home as yours? Or as a gift to be used by God. As a place where God can advance his kingdom in your city. As a place where your loving your neighbor can become a reality. Being a good neighbor starts with radically ordinary hospitality. I'm going to wrap it up in a little bit, but I just want to give you a brief history of hospitality that I learned from one of my favorite teachers, John Mark Comer, and he tells us the, the origin of the word hospitality. You know, the words hospital, hospice, hotel, hostel, they all come from the root word hospitality, and there's a reason for that because in the ancient world, there were no hospitals. There were no hotels, there were no Airbnbs, and as we read in our passage today, travel between places was dangerous and slow and treacherous. There were no hotels where people could find refuge. There were inns, but they were really, really dangerous. There were no hospitals where people can receive healing. Now, this is really cool. Check this out. Followers of Jesus picked up on this need, that people were traveling long and dangerous roads, but there's no place to rest and no place to heal. And so followers of Jesus picked up on this need, and they stepped in. In fact, the bishop charged the church in their day and age, they charged followers of Jesus to set aside a room in the house just for Christ. And they say, call that room your Christ room, right? Most of us have a bedroom or a bathroom. How many of us have a Christ room? And they would use these rooms to practice hospitality, so that weary travelers can come in need of rest, for people in seek of refuge from the dangerous roads, for the sick and injured to come to heal and recover. These Christ rooms became known all across the land, so much so that when people came to a new city, they were asking, where are the followers of Jesus? Because I need rest, or I need a heal, or I need some, I, need, I have needs, and I know that they're going to meet them. They were famous for this, And so many of the institutions that we rely on today, like hospitals or shelters, they actually originated in the Christian home. Isn't that mind-blowing? That before all these institutions came into place that benefit human flourishing, it was the Christian home that was responsible to meet these needs. What if we could recapture the vision of the early church? What if Christians could be known once again for their generous hospitality? What if once again we could have a a profound understanding that our homes are not ours, but they're gifts for God to be used? Being a good neighbor starts with radically ordinary hospitality. A pastor I once followed said, or was asked a question, is your goal... For everyone in the city to receive salvation? You know, a Christian hears that, they're like, of course. But he says, no. My goal is not for everyone to receive salvation. My goal is for everyone in my city to be loved. Because when your goal is salvation, you become like a car salesman. And you're only doing things in order to solicit a certain response. But when love is the goal, salvation becomes the natural fruit. Never underestimate the power of radically ordinary hospitality, of simple love. Because the fruit of love, of real love rooted in Jesus, is salvation. One of the people who I mentioned earlier embody this really well is a man named Bob Goff. Listen, if, you, if you've never heard of Bob Goff before today, you've got to search him up. So Bob, in his books, he has all these wonderful stories that sound like they all come out of a Pixar book. And Bob's whole life mission, he's all about loving people well. And just the kind of of guy he is, his office is on Treasure Island in Disneyland. You, You ever see Treasure Island in Disneyland? He has an office there. He actually includes his personal phone number on the back of his book that people can call. We actually had a friend that called, and he picked up. It's crazy. And he just picks up random hours of the day. And one of the traditions he started in his neighborhood was throwing an annual parade. And so he describes his block as only being about 20 houses. But he said, every year, we're going to throw a parade on New Year's Day. And so he started, at first, it was just him and just a few other people, about eight people. They looked really crazy. But they started doing a parade down the street on the first day of every year. But he was intent on being a positive, noticeable presence of love in his neighborhood. And as the years passed, it grew and grew until the entire neighborhood started participating. They would blow up thousands of helium balloons every parade. They would even crown like a homecoming king and queen, just a neighbor that they just want to shower their love upon. And it became this beautiful thing, this beautiful act of love that became a staple. Now, I think they just did it. This year too. So it's been over twenty years that they've done this. And he asked this this ask yourself this question what will make the people in your neighborhood be glad you are there? Get ready for the conviction. The sad reality is that for most of us, if we were to move out of our place tomorrow, no one would notice. And I get it. I mean, Chris and I were renters for many years before we were able to graciously purchase a home. And we understand, like, this is not like our our eternal home. You know, we're just here for a year, maybe two. But I think there's something powerful. There's something significant about where you live and the call of the gospel on your life. The sad reality is most of our neighbors have no idea who we are. We have no impact in our neighborhoods. And our neighborhoods are no better or worse for having us. There's nothing better than being in that middle bled, right? At least be a hard no or a hard yes. But most of us, we're just, we're not even noticed in our neighborhood. You know, Chris and I, as I mentioned, we were able to purchase a new home a few months ago. We're moving in in two weeks, y'all. So we'll be back in the city. Um, Sacramento is demonic. It's so hot. It's, it's 109 degrees. I mean, I don't know how people live out there. Just kidding. I love Sac. But when we were moving this last time, so this is our third place that we were living together as a married couple, our neighbors were sad. Uh, I remember one of our neighbors, his name is Phil, and he used to have a a wife named Janice who was alive when we moved in but passed about a year into our our stay there. And they have a, a, a son with special needs named Nick, and we would see them pass by all the time. We'd say hi. Uh, we bring, like, food and desserts and chocolates over. We got to know them really well. I remember one day I was getting my mail, and I passed by Phil and Nick as they were walking. And I was like, oh, Phil, Nick, hey, we're actually, we're selling the place, and we're, we're trying to find a new one. He's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sad. And part of me was like, you know, I feel sad too, but part of me felt happy that that he noticed, that he cared. And then our other neighborhoods, there are for San Francisco, David Chu, if you voted for him. And... Oh, assemblymen, sorry. And they have a little son named Lucas who would always peek through our windows and look for Fig. And they were sad that we were moving too. And it made me happy that even though we only got to know our neighbors to our left and our right, that we had some sort of impact there. And it gives me a vision for, my next, for our next place. We actually are still in the same neighborhood. We just moved over a few buildings. So we'll still see Phil and Nick and David and Lucas and all of them. But it gave me a vision that where I live I want to be that presence of love. I want my home to be an outpost for the kingdom of God. I want our son to grow up knowing his neighbors, knowing that we're a house that actually tries to be a presence where we live. How beautiful is that? And so I have three challenges for you, and I broke it up because I think y'all love this. There's a beginner level, there's an intermediate level, and there's an advanced level. All the type threes in here, I know you're going to go right for advance. (laughs) Beginner level is simply this. My challenge to you this week, based on this teaching, learn the names of your neighbors. That's it. We can't love people we don't know. And I know it's kind of weird just, you know, going over these days and saying, hey, introducing yourself. Maybe you could bring, like, dessert, say, hey, I've been living here for a while, and I just thought it's time that I got to know my neighbors, Maybe bring over something and introduce yourself. Spark a conversation with a neighbor in the mailroom. But beginner level, just get to know the names of your neighbors. Just start there. Intermediate level, we're going to take it a little more spiritual. Go on a prayer walk through your neighborhood. Walk the streets. Get to know your boulevard, your block. Begin praying over each house. Invite God's presence to come and make his dwelling in your neighborhood. Ask God to highlight different houses or different neighbors that you want to reach out to and get to know. Um, there's a man that I follow who does this once every year, and it's crazy the testimonies that he tells when God highlights a person or a house and to see God moving in that relationship. Ask God, God, give me clarity about, like, who you want me to get to know, who you want me to invest in. And then the advanced level for you type threes and you overachievers here in San Francisco, sometime this year, invite your neighbors over for a meal. This could be your actual neighbor it could be your barista or your coworker, or your barber or your gym trainer, right? How, how great would you feel as a gym trainer if one of your, f- c- your clients invited you over for a meal? Yeah, it would be an honor, right? Make your home a Christ room. I know most of us don't have enough bedrooms to have a Christ room, but make your dining room a Christ room for people to come to rest and receive And I just want to throw this long-term vision. If you're going to stay at your place longer, make your house a gathering point for the neighbors. Throw a holiday party. Host a monthly neighbor night where you invite people over for dinner. Invite a neighbor over to watch the NBA finals or play Super Smash Brothers and get mad at each other. I don't know. All I'm saying is being a good neighbor starts with radically ordinary hospitality. What if we could recapture the vision of the early, early church what if we could love so fiercely in the most ordinary of ways that our presence makes a difference? How different would our city look? How different would our neighborhoods look? Right now, I want to invite you into a time of response. Um, why don't we close our eyes and let's just have a moment between us and God. Why don't we connect to the message that he's speaking to us today. And there's three questions that I want us to pray through right now. There's three things that I want us to answer as we're here in the presence of God. The first question is this, God, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who is the one that you're calling me to love? Maybe some of you, you're thinking of your actual neighbors as I'm preaching this message. Maybe some of you, you're thinking of your coworker, Maybe some of you are thinking of the friend that lives across the street. I don't know. Ask God, who do you want me to invest in this season? Who is the neighbor that you want me to love? Who is the one that you want me to pursue? Who is the one that you want me to show ordinary, radically ordinary hospitality to? Who is my neighbor? Ask God to give you clarity. I feel like for many of us, it's going to be our neighbor. I don't know. When I, when I put together this teaching, I was so convicted. I want to get to know my entire neighborhood. Maybe for some of you, it's your neighbor. Maybe for some of you, maybe it's that person that you pass by on the street that's in need, that you see every day but you chose to look away. Ask God, who is my neighbor? The second thing I want you to ask God God, how are you calling me to love my neighbor this this season? How are you calling me to show my love, my hospitality for this neighbor? Is it just sparking a conversation with them, getting to know them? Is it just praying for them in the secret place? Is it inviting them over for a meal? Is it bringing them some boba on a hot Sunday afternoon and just sparking a conversation? What does it look like to love my neighbor God, would you convict us? Would you inspire us? Begin asking God that. God, how are you calling me to love my neighbor this season? And the last thing that I want to ask, that I feel like God is asking us, do you see your home as yours or as a gift from God to be used? And I feel like the invitation for most of us right now is that God wants us to give our homes as a living sacrifice to God, submit our homes to him to be used for his purposes, to be atmospheres of love, that our homes would be transformed into Christ rooms where we can have an opportunity to love our neighbor, where we can have a space to show the love of God. I feel like God is saying for, for many of us, our homes are the canvas where God is painting the story of love in your neighborhood. Your home is the canvas where God is painting the story of his beautiful narrative, the story of his radical love for everyone on your block, for everyone on your street, for everyone in your building. And so, God, right now, we surrender our homes to you. We say, God, we want you We want you to be the reason why we have these homes. Whether we're renting or buying, we want to offer our homes to you as a gift to be used. Make our homes outposts for the kingdom of God. Make our homes the canvas where your love is shown. Make our homes the very place where we can actually live out your greatest command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so we give you our homes. We give you our households. Would you come and make them Christ's rooms for your use? God, we want your heart. We want your heart. Would you give it to us?